Podcast One production. Punchy. Whacked. Power. Influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Nina Fennell is a Walkley award-winning journalist who does the most extraordinary work, particularly in the area of survivors of sexual assault. And, you know, she's she's more than a journalist. She's an advocate and a campaigner. She changes the laws. She's changing the world, I reckon. And just to think of how she's sustained that activity over the, the last few years, and, and it's such a difficult area, but you can tell she just wants the world to change. Yep. And, you know, she puts it that it's about healing and that it's a privilege to work alongside the women who are so brave. I, You know, I, I think Nina is a standout Australian. Nina, you've led a successful campaign called Let Her Speak in Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, a couple of years ago, um, in my role as a journalist, I was contacted by a young woman. Um, at the time, she was 22 years old. Her name's Grace. And she wanted to tell her story about what had happened to her. Now, when she was 15, she went to a pretty elite private school in Hobart called St Michael's Collegiate Girls School. And her 58-year-old maths teacher groomed her and then repeatedly sexually assaulted her. Now, she reported that months after it happened, a few months after it happened, and he pled guilty and went to jail. So fast forward, she's now she was 22, and she wanted to, for the very first time, come forward and tell her story using her real name. And I thought, sure, there shouldn't be any reason. You know, there were no defamation issues. There were no subjudice issues. There was none of the things that would usually make it difficult to report on sexual assault. And then my lawyer stepped in and said, well, actually, there's this completely bizarre, archaic law that only exists in Tasmania and the Northern Territory that prohibits all sexual assault survivors from speaking to the media under their real name. So if I did name Grace, which is what she wanted, I could be facing prosecution. And in in the Northern Territory, I could actually face six months jail if I named a sexual assault survivor who consented to being named. And so I I initially kind of couldn't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... So essentially what we decided to do was um, tackle the problem in two ways. Firstly, we took Grace's fight to the Supreme Court to get her an individual personal exemption and we won that fight earlier this year. So after two years of waiting, she could finally tell her story under her real name. And the other thing that we decided to do was to campaign to change the law itself because Grace, so her full name is Grace Laurentame. She's now 24 and she's the first and only female sexual assault survivor in Tasmania who can use her real name when speaking to media. Isn't that extraordinary? extraordinary. I still remember the power of that of one of the young women who was involved in the, um, I think it was the Bilal Scaff court cases here and she, they protected the names of all the victims and called them victim or witness K and witness whatever. And then she actually came out at the end of the court case and said, this is my name. I have done nothing wrong. Why am I being 
disguised as if I've got something to be ashamed about. And I remember how powerful that was. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think you might be talking about Tegan Wagner. Yes, yes. that's it. Tegan Wagner, thank you. I just she was, was she was incredible. Like yeah, Saxon Mullins as well, who who also was saying, Well, I nothing wrong. Why can't I speak about? I suppose it's seen as well meaning but in mm. the way that women are so often patronised and protected against their own experiences in a bizarre way. Yeah, I mean, the law, uh, so I began researching, well, why did this law get implemented in the first place? And essentially it was implemented with the best of intentions, which was to stop journalists from naming victims who didn't want to be identified. But the problem was that the lawmakers never conceptualised of a survivor who might want to be named. Um, and... So because of that, there was no loophole. So, uh, you know, so one of the things that we decided to do early on as part of the Let Her Speak campaign was for me to interview other public survivors, people like Saxon Mullins, who had told their stories in other jurisdictions to find out, well, why was that important for you? What was, what did mm. that mean for you to be able to do that? And why was, and, you know, the, the themes, uh, you know, and Jane, you were one of the people that I spoke to at the mm. time. And the themes that I kept hearing over and over were, this was about reclaiming power. It was a, about taking ownership of their own stories. So when you have these really paternalistic laws in the Northern Territory and Tasmania, which prohibit all rape and sexual assault survivors from being able to speak, not only does that then limit their own capacity to take control back over their own story, but the other thing that I kept hearing was it also means that you're depriving other survivors in the community of role models Yeah, because they're course. not seeing people step into their power and say, you know what, I'm not defined by this, um, I'm a survivor, not a victim, and there's no shame with me, the shame sits with the perpetrator. So essentially where we're up to with the campaign now is Tasmania has agreed to review the laws and they're currently being reviewed. So we expect them to be amended either end of this year or early next. Uh, the Northern Territory, though, the fight is really only just beginning. So I'm currently working with two rape survivors from the NT, both of whom want to tell their stories under their real names. And we're going to um, essentially follow the same steps of fighting their cases individually to try to get them the individual right to tell their stories and then at the same time do a a more systematic approach to reform, which is getting the law itself amended to bring it into alignment with the other jurisdictions around Australia. Do you think the Me Too movement and the fact that so many women, you know, over those weeks on social media came out and told their stories has had an effect on the Tasmanian and Northern Territory um, lawmakers and the way they look at this? Well, I think it has to. I mean, you, one of the things that I've said to them is you can't have a Me Too movement no, in Tasmania no. at the moment. You simply can't have one. And one of the other women who is, we're working in the campaign, we've given her the pseudonym Leia for now, but she has actually waited 25 years to tell her story. She was gang raped when she was 16 years old on Christmas Day and then taken to dig her own grave and she escaped and she's actually been, her perpetrators were found and they went to jail and she's actually been waiting for the ringleader to pass away in order to feel safe enough to write her memoir and her 
you know, her autobiography. And when she found out about this law, she realised that if she published her own autobiography, she would actually be in contempt of court and could be prosecuted for that. So it's intense silencing, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Vanishing of women's experience, really, isn't it? Wiping it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's an appalling, Mm. appalling law. But, I mean, look, I think the Me Too movement has opened up a discussion space where increasingly people are realising that individuals should, you know, the the nature of sexual assault is that it robs you of power and control and voice. Mm. So to then have laws which further strip you of that essentially deny your agency. Mm. But I think what the Me Too movement has shown is that there is incredible power in taking back ownership and, you know, being able to say this is something that happened to me but I'm not defined by it. These actions, the shame and the stigma sits with the person who made that choice to to offend. Mm, mm. I've just finished watching the uh, series Unbelievable on Netflix, which is quite riveting oh, yeah. um, and uh, it, extraordinary, actually. Yeah. Um, and I hesitate to say it's uplifting, but actually by the end of it, it is. Mm. Um, so it really shines a light on, on that whole culture in the US. Um, but Nina, um, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it, to be at this point in our history and realise that these things actually enshrined in law still, uh, much less cultural beliefs and about perpetrators mm. and who's to blame uh, and so on. Is that shifting? Um, uh, yeah, clearly not shifting as much as it should, but is it shifting a bit now after Me Too? I think so, but I I would caution against saying it's just because of Me Too. I mean, mm, I, think, yeah. I think that there have been decades and decades of predominantly women who have been working on the front lines to get that attitudinal shift. And I think it's because of that work that something like Me Too can occur and can take off. But one of the things that I found a little bit frustrating in the Me Too discussion is the erasure of a lot of advocacy that sits behind that. And, you know, I look at the work of feminists that they've been doing since, you know, the 70s. And and I I think that that attitudinal shift that we are seeing um, has been a very long time coming. Mm. And how do you react to the kinds of, I think, facile responses to Me Too, which says, um, oh, men are afraid now, they can't be alone in a room with a woman at work and, you know, all oh. that, this nonsensical kind of, it'll ruin, I love this, you could ruin a man's career. I keep waiting to see when that actually happened. But nevertheless, it, it, that is the kind of response it's a it's again it's I call it pulling focus from the women who are suffering mm. assault to mm. the men who are afraid they might be accused of assault. Really? Absolutely. Um I think that's exactly what it is is pulling focus. But also I, I mean I'm I'm like you say I'm yet to see the evidence that it is actually career ending yeah, because yeah. in you know Donald Trump hello no, like yeah. and how many how many footballers how many you know people who have had very very serious allegations who then go on to be employed I mean the story the kinds of stories that I've written over the years of individuals who have done some appalling appalling things who within a, you know, they're, they're given a timeout and they're sent to the naughty corner, you know, yeah. they're given, you know, a two-month timeout. My goodness from David Jones was back in a uh, CEO role within the year. Yeah, you know, or they, 
you know, give them two months and then they'll become a white ribbon ambassador and they'll, <laughs> they'll say they've done the wrong thing. And then they're, they're back. In, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's a frustrating cycle to see. But I also think that w- when you have that kind of obsessive focus on, oh, this will be career ending for men and what about the man, et cetera, et cetera, you're also not understanding the impact that, I mean, look, when somebody says that they have been sexually assaulted or harassed, it's not as though some, you know, truckload of cash arrives at their front door. No. And like, <laughs> like, it's, I mean. The money and notoriety. Are, really? Mm. And people say, oh, she's doing it for the attention or for the money. What money? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I one of the projects that I'm hoping to work on next year is a book looking at the stories of whistleblowers who have come forward in these cases and to find out what happened in their life after the media attention died down mm. because I can tell you, you know, the, the women that I've interviewed for the sorts of stories that I've done over the years are extraordinary people but it takes a huge emotional, psychological and career toll on them to tell these stories and I... I still remember I um uh, it was early last year I was working on a report into sexual assault and hazing at residential colleges and this is another big part of your work in mm. rape on campus isn't it yeah, yeah yeah so I was working on a report called the red zone report and the red zone refers to orientation week because we know that that's when the most sexual assaults occur in universities and particularly within residential colleges and um and I was filming with one of the whistleblowers who was speaking out in in that report, and we were filming with the 7.30 report um, and the ABC. And her name's Gabby Lynch, and I, I just said to Gabby, you know, how are you feeling about your story coming out and how are you feeling about what's going to happen when all of your peers from your college at St John's hear, hear what you said? And she said, well, I've cancelled my birthday. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I've cancelled my 21st birthday party. And I said, why? And she said, because everybody who was invited goes to that college and no one is going to speak to me after this comes out. And I remember calling the journalist over and I just said, you know, can you repeat what you just told me? And I did that because I wanted the journalists and the producers to understand what the cost is for a student or for any person really, for any any whistleblower, in speaking out against institutional power in relation to topics like hazing or sexual assault. And I, another, um, one of the, the other people in that report, Justine, she, um, her story, it's it's one of the few that actually always I find difficult to talk about, but she had, she was also at Sydney University at a residential college and she um, is a young journalist and had written an article about sexual assault and harassment and so on at the residential colleges. And what happened after that was, you know, she would walk into her dining hall and people and sit down at a table and everybody at the table would sit, would stand up and walk away. And she'd walk down the hallways and people would refuse to make eye contact with her. And she said what on her bedroom door, on the outside of her bedroom door, she had lots of photos of her and friends. And she said that over the course of the next semester after she had written that article, she would come home on a Monday and just one photo each week would be pulled down until finally there was only one photo left and she came home and she pulled it down herself. And then she went into the room and she tried to take her life. And she was hospitalised that night. And I remember when she told me that story, just my heart just broke for her because 
that cruelty mm. is just staggering. And it's cruelty in the face of somebody who she'd written an article. You yeah, know? yeah. That's, that's yeah. what she did. And she'd written it because she wanted things to be better. Mm. And, you know, whenever I'm working with the people I interview, I often start by asking them, what's your objective in telling your story? Mm. And then the second thing that I ask them is, and what are you afraid of right now? And the things that I've found through all the different interviews I've done over the years with sexual assault survivors and harassment survivors and whistleblowers of different forms is they're always, always, without exception, every story that I can think of that I've told, they've been motivated by altruistic reasons. They most often want to tell their story because they want to prevent it from happening to somebody else. And when I ask them, what are you afraid of? They're afraid they won't be believed, that they're going to be blamed, that they're going to be ostracised, that they're going to be accused of either being a slut or making things up or being an attention seeker. And the, the worst thing about it is that I have to sit there and I have to say, and you know what, you probably will be. And you're probably yeah, right you're probably because right. those are all quite rational fears. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're realistic. They really are. And mm. I'd be lying if, and, you know, as journalists we... We have to be ethical mm. when we're working mm. with really vulnerable yeah. people and we have to be realistic with them about yeah. what the, those risks are. Yeah. And yet the ones who decide to go ahead anyway, yeah. 100% of the time, they are doing it because they have some kind of bigger social justice objective which is about preventing it from happening to the next person in line. And so that's why when, you know, going back to the original question, I know it's a very long, <laughs> no, long-winded response. But, not at all. But going back to the original question, that's why I get so incredibly frustrated when somebody goes, you know, oh, well, this is career-ending for the bloke. It's like, can, no. can we talk about the impacts on whistleblowers? Can we talk about the price they pay mm. to you, come forward? You All the way that you were speaking, I was thinking I've just finished reading the fantastic book she said, by the two New York yeah. Times journalists who first broke the Harvey Weinstein um, mm. revelations. And they write in that extensively, of course, about uh, Christine Blasey Ford coming out uh, about uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who is, of course, now on the Supreme Court in America. Very and career-ending for him. More allegations are emerging. Exactly. Mm. But her, the the price she had to pay, I still, I think she still has not been able to return to her home no. mm. because of the level of death threats and abuse and that sort of thing that she had to put up with. And I'll never forget that um, the line uh, that she said at the time where she said, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, which was about how Kavanaugh and his mate were laughing about mm. her while she was being held down and sexually assaulted oh. in the bedroom, which just always gets to me and, and and for me sounded completely believable, that there's something about that mockery and that uh, gleeful kind of cruel laughter that is so much part of that hazing. That's the word you used, hazing, which is caught up in that. Oh, it's all a joke, you know. Mm. Um, can't you take a joke? It's just a bit of fun. Do you think there's a way in which some people, both men and women, minimise, they really don't see uh, sexual assault as a serious issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the ways in which sexual violence are minimised leads to this, well, it's and it's so complex because victims themselves often minimise yes. their experiences as well. I think you have perpetrators and offenders who minimise what they're doing 
in order to evade taking responsibility. And many, many perpetrators do not recognise that what they're doing constitutes an assault because in their own mind they've written excuses and justifications for their behaviour and their choices. But victims also um, tend to minimise downplay. And that's actually part of shock and trauma. That's that's not that that experience is not devastating. It's actually a coping mechanism. How you survive it. Exactly. But then when you have a broader context around it and a culture that also minimises and downplays and excuses and constructs a defence or a justification. Boys will for, be boys. Exactly. <laughs> um, then you can understand why you have a lot of survivors who who find it extraordinarily difficult to report um, and to come forward because if everyone around them is also minimising it, they begin to internalise that. Of course they internalise it. You know, it's... Well, they're part of society. I always say that too. Yeah. I mean, how can you expect women not to absorb some of these norms and understand and also mm. understand that when they do step out of it, of course they're, you know, immediately their version is always questioned. It's mm. like, oh, that didn't happen. You're exaggerating. Oh, that wasn't harassment. How many drinks did you have? Yeah. What were you wearing? Mm. Why were you there? Mm. What mm. did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Precisely. Um, all, and, and I think women ask them those questions of themselves. And, I mean, I know myself. Well, they're encouraged to. Yeah. Yeah. I know myself when I um, started to do that book, Unbreakable, which you both contributed to, um, I, I dragged my feet. I didn't want to do it. You know, I kept finding reasons not to, um, though I stupidly pitched it to a publisher who was quite keen, so I bloody had to. <laughs> and, you know, um, I had to talk about for the first time my own. And I still say this every time I say it. Relatively mild. Always say that. Isn't that interesting? It's Mm. just, and that's partly because I don't want to pull focus from other people's um, experiences by trying to pretend that mine is more. But it's that same thing of I'm not allowed to take up any space. I'm not allowed to talk Mm. about my experience. I'm not allowed to own how bad it actually was. But it was so interesting asking people to contribute and people like you were incredibly generous and gave your experiences. And my whole thing was they don't have to be major. They have to be just part of that culture which normalises women being treated in a sexually inappropriate ways, in all sorts of different um, places and circumstances. Well, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about um, Lee Sales and uh, oh, moderating yes. um, a charity event recently um, and a man got up on stage next to her, was part of the, the, the charity, uh, and kissed her on the lips oh. in front of the entire... Which did trigger a really interesting and very public discussion about inappropriate behaviour um, and I, I heard her mentioning it and saying that she she absolutely dressed him down about it, but she did she did say at the time I felt well I've dealt with it, but she said I do understand that we had to have a broader conversation about that, mm. and I think I think that's uh, very important. And this may be because of our sort of legalistic lens that we apply to these things, but so often sexual violence is measured through the physical act which occurred, whereas I think that if you really get down to what it is that creates the trauma, it's the level of fear, the level of vulnerability and the power differential. And so, I mean, I I completely hear what you're saying, Jane, because I've minimised my own experiences and I've 
worked with so many people who have as well. And I think that that's part of exactly as you say, not feeling entitled mm. to take up space and own mm. how bad something really is. Mm. But this kind of preoccupation around like, well, was it penetrative rape? Was it this? Was it that? As opposed to... Where were your bruises? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to understanding, well, how scared did you feel? You know, how, how vulnerable were you in that moment? These how are humiliated. The, exactly. These are the things that actually create trauma. And I, I, I remember speaking to a counsellor once who, who said it like this to me. She said, Nina, it's not about what body part touched what other mm. body part. That's not the issue that, that creates the trauma. That's the legal, that's what mm. the lawyers, you know, and the judge and the jury focus on. It's actually the fear. And I remember that always stuck with me because people don't even need to be physically touched to experience incredible life-threatening fear. Mm. And I think if there was more understanding and awareness around that, there might be more compassion and empathy for survivors who come forward with stories that don't necessarily meet with the stranger danger alleyway rape scenario, but whose stories maybe deviate in in other ways. Mm. And if there was more focus on that, I think that there might be more empathy. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's as if we are having this conversation for the first time as a kind of whole community and society. Because if I, I mean, I've written, as you both know, novels about Elizabeth I, and she was actually sexually molested by Thomas Seymour, dressed up as a kind of game when she was 13 years old. Mm. And so, I mean, if we know about that, um, with one of the world's most famous virgins, quite interesting, if you think about the consequences perhaps, um, Mm. it's been going on probably for time immemorial, and yet the silencing by associating the shame Mm. and women throughout history doing just what we've all done, minimising, don't want to take up space, don't want to draw attention, don't want to be seen as a victim, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it probably was my fault partially, what did I say, do, blah, 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 all that stuff. There's millennia of that. Mm. And that for the first time ever, we're starting to lift, and that's what Me Too felt like for me, when I was watching it unfold on social media, as if a lid had come off something. Because there were women in their, on their, in their 80s who were writing about experiences they'd mm. never told anyone before in their lives. And I think that's what's so fascinating about this point in history. Not that we're fixing it yet because I don't think we are, but we're talking about it. You do an amazing thing. You used to work, I know, with um, rugby league, training their young players in awareness about this stuff. And you did a great exercise, which you mentioned in Unbreakable, which I always thought was just so simple and yet such a genius way of pointing out the different way that sexual assault forces women to live in the world Mm. as opposed to men. Would you mind telling us about that exercise? I mean, this is an exercise that has been done with all types of different groups from college students to elite athletes, and, and I can't take credit for it either, I should say well, that. Well, you resent it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically the exercise uh, begins by asking a group of men to write on a whiteboard what they do every day to avoid being sexually assaulted or harassed. And, you know, we give out the markers and we say, go for it. And often we're met with completely blank stares. Then we bring in women 
Um, it doesn't matter if they're young women, if they're old women, if they're thin women, if they're fat women. It doesn't matter. You just bring in women mm-hmm. and you ask them, what do you do every day to avoid being sexually assaulted or harassed? And they will fill up the entire whiteboard and often they have to think a little bit first because it's become so ingrained and so normalised and just so part of their modus operandi that it just, you know, that they're not even conscious. They're on autopilot when they're doing it. But it's all of that stuff from, you know, I sit in the backs of taxis, I cover my drinks, I, you know, certain ways I dress, certain ways, you know, where do I sit on public transport? Think about where I park my car if it's going to get dark before I get back to it. Or will I even take the car? You know, will I do something else? I mean, it's... You know, Constant. walking with the, the keys between the yep. fingers. Take the um, high heels off if you're the, at the top of the alleyway. You know, um, I you know I know ones that I do where I, um, you know, I might have my earphones mm. in, but the moment that I start to feel uncomfortable, I'll turn, turn it to silence so I can, I've got full alertness to what's going on around me. Or if someone, you hear someone following you and you will take your phone out and pretend, pretend to make to be them on the phone. phone. Yeah. Or you'll stop as if you've, um, your shoelace has come undone so that they'll walk past you. All these things. And... Once they get started, though, they don't stop. Mm. That's the point, until the board is completely filled. And it's a really powerful exercise for the men to observe because they're not being accused of anything. They're being invited to observe something. And what we're inviting them to observe is the extent to which women must micromanage their daily behaviours simply to avoid that level of fear. And as I just said before, it is the fear. Mm. So if you can imagine men out there, for example, if they can imagine what is it like to walk around in a constant sort of white noise of low-level fear, and that's the background soundtrack of your life, is that constant fear. What is the cost of that psychologically, emotionally, financially? I mean, like, Mm. you know, people who don't have to go far, but rather than walking, they're going to get a taxi or, you know, and not that that's even necessarily safe because women get raped in taxis too, right. you know, like it's, <laughs> what is the cost? And anyway, we do, we do that activity firstly. Um, well, I think it's powerful for everybody in the room. I think it's powerful for women to actually be given the space to reflect on that work that they're doing and the emotional labour that they're doing every day and to realise it's bullshit. Like yeah. it is bullshit yeah. that we have to do this. Yeah. Um, but it's also really powerful for the men to, because what we're doing as well is we're inviting them to empathise, mm. even if it's just for one afternoon, to stand in a woman's heels, high heels, yeah. <laughs> um, and and think about what that what that must be like. And a lot of the men will talk to us later and say, I had no idea. And, you know, another one of the activities that we do would be um, what we would say is if a young woman is by herself at a bar and two of you guys approach her, what is she thinking and feeling? And, you know, you get a range of responses <laughs> to yeah. that question. Yeah. Um, and this I, is my lucky day, I bet, is one of the first yeah, ones I yeah, say, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, we ask young women, okay, if you were by yourself at a bar and two guys, not necessarily players, but any, any two guys approached you, what would you be thinking and feeling? And, you know, There'll be times when women are quite happy to be approached oh, and be chatted to, but but the first thing that they are thinking is what do these people, what do these men want? What do they want? Yeah, and what is my exit strategy if I need one? And it may be that they're you know 
Perfectly nice guys. Perfectly nice guys and they don't need that exit strategy. Mm. But before they get to that point of deciding they don't need an exit strategy, they've had that thought, what do these guys want and do I need an exit strategy? And the guys, the the players that we used to do this activity with were stunned because Mm. if two, you know, if one of them is sitting at a bar by themselves and two women approach, they're not thinking, am I safe? Do I need an exit strategy? No, no, not at all. My sister has a really good um, analogy. She says, most dogs are nice, but some are vicious, but you can't tell just by looking at them, which is which. Mm. And so you're a little bit wary of any dog you don't know. And that for women, that's absolutely the way it is. Most men are nice, but some are dangerous and you don't know just by looking at them. It's like we were talking, Catherine and I, before we started recording about Hannah Gadsby's great analysis where she said it's not because so many men are saying things like, but I'm a good man, I would never do something like that. And her point was you don't get to decide if you're a good man because sometimes we all do bad things and you can say I'm a good man who occasionally does bad things. Women must get to decide Mm. whether you're a good man or not. Mm -hmm. That's a real challenge to a lot of men, isn't it? This idea that you can't just claim because I feel like I'm a good person and I go around with good instincts mm. that occasionally I might let myself down, I'm still a good man. Actually, that's not that's not what makes you a good man. It's how other people experience you mm. that makes you a good man. And also, I mean, going back to the analogy that you just used mm. about the dog, um, I was just thinking about that and and what does that mean as well if you've already been bitten? Yes. Mm. Because... Yeah. Just look at the stats, one in five women, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't think that, you know, if, if, a, if a man approaches, you know, a woman at a bar, I don't think he's thinking there's a one in five shot that this, this young woman has already been sexually assaulted no. and maybe that should factor into <laughs> to how I approach. <laughs> mm. Of course I don't, like, yeah. you know, because women don't, we don't walk around with science on us that okay. say I've had, um, you know, I've had an experience or I've been impacted by sexual violence. And yet I think you could take a pretty safe bet that just about every woman you ever meet has had some form of sexual harassment, maybe not sexual Mm. violence but sexual harassment or humiliation since she was a child Mm. up. Yeah, and I mean, look, every woman has a story of some sort. Yes. I mean, that's what the Me Too movement really showed, I think, is that the the details differ Mm. but every woman has a story. Nina, how how do you keep going? And mm. you're so effective. Um, you're a wonderful journalist. Um, you lead campaigns in this area. Um, I know, you know, you've had your own incredibly distressing um, incident. What? But but it's, it's a different thing to keep going, isn't mm-hmm. it? And to be absolutely active in this space. And I just wonder what it is that gives you um, that incredible uh, focus and that sustains mm. you as as you keep going. I guess, you know, and you've just sort of flagged it there. And for those who don't know me, I, um, I'm i quite public about the fact that when I was 23, I was sexually assaulted. And I went public five weeks after that happened. And that decision to go public completely changed my life for the better. Um, it was the moment that I... You know, when you've reported a sexual assault to the police, that process in and of itself can be quite traumatising because you're inscribed within a system you don't necessarily understand 
and you often feel quite powerless and there's often radio silence and all of those things were impacting me at the time. The moment I went to the media was the first decision that I'd made after my assault where I began to feel a bit in control again. And for me, the last 10 years have been a continuation of that moment of I am taking something back. I'm taking, And so I guess what sustains me is it's inherently healing, actually, to be able to feel as though I'm now using my training as a journalist to give voice to others who are without um, and also to watch them have that moment where they get to step into their own power and take their control back um, and to bear witness to that but also to help facilitate that is also healing for me because it's allowing me to continue that. Um, you know, I, the, the stories themselves, I always say the stories themselves are horrific you know, and there are details from police reports that I have nightmares. Like, I, I actually have had nightmares over some of the stories that I report on. But the people that I get to work with are incredible people and it's a privilege to be able to work with them. And often, often when I'm reporting on sexual assault, I am, you know, I'm not doing court reporting where you're watching people who are often highly, highly traumatised. I do a different kind of reporting where I'm meeting people at a, part, at a point in their journey where they've actually made that decision that they want to take a bit of control back. So, again, their stories are terrible, but it's actually, they're pretty remarkable people. And to be able to, um, to work with them and work in aid of them being able to tell their story, it's, it's a privilege um, and it's empowering both for them and for myself, to be honest. But it's also so important for our society. I mean, I don't want to sound too grandiose here, but I mean, what you're doing is so incredibly important. Thank you. As not just a circuit breaker, but changing our whole attitude to this on so many levels. When you spoke about how healing it is, and I totally get it that if you take back your power by speaking about it and um, telling your own story, um, you are reclaiming control over what happened to you in your life. What went through me was a sense of heartbrokenness for all the generations of women Mm. who've gone before us who never got to heal because they were Mm. never allowed to speak up about what happened to them and Mm. how damaging that must have been Mm. and what, you know, I'm having a moment of anger really thinking and how convenient if you Mm. wanted to hobble and um, kind of, uh, hold back a whole gender yep. to create a situation, not on purpose, not consciously, but the benefit of that, mm. well, I'll leave it to the audience to think how that might have worked out because it also strikes me that Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workplaces in the world. 60% of us work in an, an industry which is dominated by one gender or the other. And I've often wondered if one of the reasons why so many Australian women work in female-dominated professions, which are lower paid, often flexible work, you know, all caring professions, et cetera, et cetera, is because, and in She Said, this come up, came up as women gave up their dreams of working in film because of the way, the sorts of things they thought they had to put up with to be able to do that. And they went into much lower paid professions where they were female dominated, so they were safer. How many women made that decision? You know, the old mm. opt out, or women mm. haven't got it, they opt out. Mm. 
Well, maybe they're opting out because they are facing. Anyway, they're only lower paid because they are female. Well, that's right. But what I mean is they're opting out of the what's seen as the sort of tougher, hard nosed stuff. But because no one speaks, no one spoke up, and Mm -hmm. so I absolutely agree with Catherine. The work you do matters so much. Thank you. I just wanted to um, just pick up on a couple of points. Mm, Please. um, The first that you talked about the generations of women who have come before us who have never ever had the opportunity to to speak out. And that just reminded me of um, of a story that I heard from a rape crisis counsellor, actually, who was talking about the number of women who are in their 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, who call because they just want to tell somebody before they leave this world. They just want to have told somebody. And I remember hearing that story and, it, you know, it's heartbreaking mm. to think about to think about that. But I, the other thing that I was just thinking about that I wanted to, to mention was um, just going back to what we mm. where we started and, mm. and talking about um, that young woman, Grace Tame, and when she contacted me. And one of the reasons why I was really determined to do her story um, was because it is so unusual for someone, you know, we, we know that when children are groomed and they're abused within institutions, it takes them an average of 21 years to tell anybody. Mm. That's right. Now, she came forward after four months. That's extraordinary. That's, you know, that is really defying the odds, actually. And I was really interested in why. Why were you able to come forward? What were the protective factors in her life that that meant that she could come forward? And I asked her, who did you first come forward to? And it was actually a male teacher at her school. And I found that really interesting mm. as well because that's, again, unusual. And I said, why why him? Um, you know, I I would love to know what was it about him that made you feel safe? And she said he told me a story where he he told the class a story which involved him sticking up for other people at great personal cost to himself. And she said, so I knew that if I told him he would he would help. And he did. Mm. He did. But the other thing that the you know the other reasons why I wanted to tell Grace's story was because while she had the support of that teacher, when her the pedophile, Nicholas Bester, was charged, the name of the offence in Tasmania that he was charged under is called maintaining a sexual relationship with someone under the age of 17. It's not called rape. In other jurisdictions, we'd call it rape. Mm. In Tasmania, it's called maintaining a relationship. Now, that led to a whole bunch of media headlines which were things like secret relationship exposed. So it was framed as if she was as it was consenting. Exactly. Now, this was a 58-year-old with a 15-year-old girl who was in hospital with anorexia and he groomed her. And he was her teacher. Exactly. She was highly vulnerable. Now, because of those headlines, her peers in the schoolyard took their cue from the headlines, which were taking their cue from the name of the law, and her peers in the schoolyard started calling her a homewrecker and a slut. And Hobart's a very small place. So the impact that that had on her, she left the country. You know, she actually dropped out of school initially and she was self-harming. And then she went back to school at a different school and managed to get an ATAR of 98.3, which is extraordinary. Mm. But, and this is where it gets even more convoluted, but when she got that ATAR of 98.3, her offender got out of jail and he enrolled in a PhD at the University of Tasmania. Now, there is only one university in Tasmania. Anyway, so Grace, had she wanted to go there with her amazing mark, 
that would have been very, very challenging. So she went off to America. And despite all of these things that had happened to her, despite the headlines, despite the bullying in the playground that she'd experienced, despite the name of the appalling law, despite all of it, she still wanted to come forward and tell her story because she wants to educate people on the warning signs of grooming and what they are. And I just wanted to share one final thing. When, as part of the Let Her Speak campaign, I put up a petition for people to sign to say that the law should be changed. And um, we got about five, well, we got over 5,000 signatures. And before Grace and I, you know, after she'd won her Supreme Court challenge and she could use her name, I printed off all 5,000 names and I bound it and gave it to her as a reminder of the public support in her corner. And when she sat down and she started reading through the names, now these to me were just names, I didn't know any of the people, but a lot of them were actually her old school peers, including the people who years ago had tormented her. And she'd realised that in, you know, with the passing of age and the benefit of maturing that little bit, these people have now understood exactly what happened and how wrong it was and now they're in her corner. And I wanted to finish on that story because that moment of all, you know, the whole Let Her Speak campaign and of all the moments that I've had reporting on these sorts of stories, that one will stick with me forever Mm. because what I got to observe was, you know, the sort of healing that would take years in therapy to achieve could happen in a split second because people were kind, caring, compassionate, and they believed her. And, you know, I think as a community, we know the number one thing that impacts on sexual assault survivors' capacity to recover is the attitudes they encounter on first disclosure. And when we believe survivors, when we support them, when we tell them it's not their fault, and we tell them that they are not alone and that we're with you, that's transformative. Thank you, Nina. Wow. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.